The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, he was born in Lake Mills, Iowa, and died in Santa Fe, New Mexico, moving west along with a nation's expansion and focus. In between, he lived in Montana, Utah, and Saskatchewan, 20 places in eight states and Canada. These were the lands of big skies, and he was an eagle, officially an eagle scout, and metaphorically an eagle of the big, open, western skies, soaring above and looking down on half of the continent. What he saw was a place of rugged history, vast beauty, encroaching civilization, a land where humans lived with nature in a spirit of promise, as long as the humans didn't screw things up. And he was a writer, let's not forget that, a prize-winning novelist often called the Dean of the American Literature of the West, and one with a proud but also troubled legacy. His name was Wallace Stegner. We'll have his story, along with our guest, Melody Edwards, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Wallace Stegner today, lots to discuss. He was a titan of his region. One of those titans who transcend their regions, maybe not quite at the level of a Faulkner, but but something like a Sarah Orne Jewett or a Willa Cather, perhaps dominant enough to become a national and even maybe a world literary figure, yet always associated with a place a state of mind stemming from that place and shaping the world's understanding of that place too, and not just through his novels, we'll get to those in a moment, but through his actual work, his activism, his work for conservation groups, work with conservation groups. He believed in wetlands and he worked to preserve and protect them along with forests and the coast. His novels tell stories about the people who navigated through and lived in the West the Colorado River, the Grand Canyon, California, places like that. This is all in the 20th century, by the way. Stegner lived from 1909 to 1993. But his books were often set in the past, looking back to family histories, pioneers, early struggles. His novel Angle of Repose won the Pulitzer Prize in 1972, and it is still often read today. His follow-up novel, The Spectator Bird and Crossing to Safety, a semi autobiographical novel, were also widely lauded and widely read. There are some forays into Wisconsin and Vermont in his biography, where Stegner spent some summers in Vermont, and he was also connected to D.C. and its politicians as part of his work to conserve lands. But for the most part, he is firmly in the West, the Dean of Western Writers. He's often called a famous creative writing program at Stanford University bears his name. They give out 10 fellowships a year, the Wallace Stegner Fellowships. Now, when do you think that began? 1995 might be one guess. A couple of years after the revered writer passed away, well, it was earlier than that. It was even in his lifetime, well, what would you think then? 89 when he turned 80 or 1984 when he turned 75, August White-haired, 
the professor in his emeritus phase, right? Isn't that usually the model? The university wants to praise the favored son who's now grown old, or maybe some wealthy donor funds the program and wants to pay tribute to his or her favorite author, and the name gets slapped on the scholarship. Nope, this was different. The Stegner Fellows date back to 1946 when Wallace Stegner himself started the program, having arrived from Harvard and believing that creative writing, fiction, poetry, and playwriting was worth supporting. Writers need time, they need support, and universities should be in the business of doing it. It's a common thought now, but in that t- at that time, only Iowa was doing something similar, giving a degree for creative writing. Stanford became... The second. Raymond Carver went through there, and ZZ Packer, and Tobias Wolf, and Vikram Seth, Scott Turow, Ken Kesey, Jesmyn Ward. The list goes on and on. Great contributions to literature, and as a model for creative writing programs, a great influence on the advent of the MFA world and the national literary landscape. But of course, We can't mention the word landscape without mentioning Stegner's other great passion, the environment. He wasn't just some guy with a sign who showed up at rallies once every 10 years or maybe wrote a check for a 100 bucks, put it in the mail. He was passionate and devoted and committed both his time and energy to the cause. He was a special assistant to the Secretary of the Interior, and for three years he served on the Sierra Club's board of directors. But what about today? We're in a different era now, and not every book from 1972 still holds our attention. And what about the rumors of appropriation and plagiarism that have dogged Wallace Stegner's legacy? In brief, his most famous work, Angle of Repose, tells the story of a mining engineer and his wife living in the late 19th century. Well, Stegner used the life of a writer named Mary Hollock Foote in his novel, And he also used her words, 38 passages, by one count, 60-some pages in all, her words with only the barest of acknowledgments. He says, quote, It uses selected facts from their real lives, but it is in no sense a family history, end quote. That's not really an acknowledgment that you've actually used someone's words. There have been two complaints registered about what Stegner did. First, he changed the life of Mary Hollock Foote, inventing an affair that didn't happen, an affair that led to the death of a child, which also didn't happen, a destroyed marriage. It's not what family members and those sympathetic to the real writer had wanted. Is that a problem? Well, it certainly caused pain, But defenders of Stegner might say, hey, this is what fiction writers do. They're vampires. They take, they modify, they present their work. This is no different from writing about one's uncle or one's grandmother or some stranger you read about in the newspaper. Writers always use a combination of the actual and the invented. Well, critics of Stegner's process say, well, hey, here's a famous male writer who stole this woman's life overshadowed her own book, which came out a year later, and and he sullied her reputation in the eyes of the world. That's charge number one. Charge number two, he did all this while using her own words, passing them off as his own, impressing readers with his insight into her mind and her writing style. 
pretending to be a a kind of virtuoso time-traveling writer when he wasn't, pretending to be a supreme empathist when he wasn't, pretending to be a better writer than he was. The family trusted him with her unpublished memoir, and he said it inspired him, but he wasn't just inspired. He cut and pasted, and he changed her legacy, which people now think involves actions and consequences that didn't actually happen. That's the accusation against Stegner. You didn't just take this from a relative or a stranger. You took it from another writer, erasing her in the process and capturing glory that rightfully belonged to her. So, a revered author, now 50 or so years past his most famous work, a legend, a legend of a region, a legend of a a whole section of a continent with a legacy that raises eyebrows. Who better for us to have here to discuss than a woman who is in the West herself, not just as a chronicler of the modern West and its legacy, although she does do that, but one who also runs a bookstore where people come in looking for good writing and good writers and good stories about the West. What do we think of Wallace Stegner today and the American West too? We have Melody Edwards, independent bookstore owner and host of the podcast, The Modern West, produced by Wyoming Public Media and PRX. Melody Edwards is next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Melody Edwards, an independent bookstore owner and host of the Peabody-nominated Murrow-winning podcast, The Modern West, produced by Wyoming Public Radio and PRX. She joins me today to talk about the great writer of the American West, Wallace Stegner, and his classic novel, Angle of Repose. Melody Edwards, welcome to the History of Literature. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. This is so fun. So let's start with an obvious question. Where did you grow up? 
So I grew up in a tiny little town called Walden, Colorado, which is the very most northern edge. It's in North Park. I don't know if you know Colorado, but it's got all these valleys kind of down the middle. And, and everybody knows South Park. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I grew up in North Park. And so it's a very small ranching town. And, you know, my dad was a logger. He worked in the oil field. And so, yeah, that's where I grew up. Mm. Was he the first generation in the West or does your family go way back? Well, it's kind of complicated. Um, my mom's side of the family, she grew up in Iowa, but her grandfather and grandmother owned a ranch outside basically where Red Rocks is, um, a giant ranch out there. And so there was some ranching in the West in my family. And and there's all these old stories about, you know, an uncle who like, you know, walked across the West, you know, with like belt of gold or something and <laughs> was like, you know, one of those guys going out looking for gold. So, so yeah, I've got kind of a, a little bit of a Western history in my family as well. Yeah. Now, when you were growing up, did you feel like you were a part of that? It, it sounds like your, your family was at least had one foot in the world of the American West as it's been portrayed or mythologized in popular culture. Yeah, for sure. You know, we, um, I was born in Washington state and my, you know, my parents were like apple pickers and just total hippies that had been roaming all over. They lived in San Francisco in, in the sixties and, and, you know, they, they very much chose to live in the West and they very much chose it because of that mythology. My mom was like, you know, the kind of kid when she was a, a kid, she was reading pulp Western novels and like drawing obsessively drawing horses at all times and aspired to be a cowgirl. Uh, so she was very much enamored with the mythology of the West. And my dad, maybe not so much as a kid, but he has, he's definitely a Westerner, like through and through at this point. He's lives in Walden and just uh, one of my seasons of about the, of the modern West was all about how my parents, my dad refuses to move away from there, even though my mom has a lot of health issues and kind of really needs to be living in a, a bigger town. And, you know, even now he has health issues and he's still just absolutely loves living close to the mountains, just very much a Westerner through and through. Mm. Now, when you say a Westerner through and through, you mentioned the horses, you mentioned the mountains. Is it also a, a state of mind, a feeling of freedom or uh, maybe a bit of outlaw uh, aspect to it or what what appeals to them? Yeah. 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 My dad has definitely got a, a definite outlaw streak to him. That's mm -hmm. for sure. Um, <laughs> and so he's he's definitely loves the sort of the freedom of it. And he's very much a like a, he, he's a big Mark Twain fan, for instance, has read pretty much everything and and just really loves that the whole concept of that the West is sort of the best of what America has ever developed um, that idea of, of, you know, public lands is America's best idea, which is actually, I think, a Stegner <laughs> quote. Um, yeah. But, anyway, you know, it's it it is that that idea that that the West and, you know, public lands and having access to these grand open spaces and wilderness and, and wildlife that may very much is, you know, why it is that my family lives here. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of the film director, John Ford, who went to Monument Valley, and it was sort of like, even coming from California, that struck him as 
oh, this is what America is and should be, is this connection with nature and maybe even being a little in awe of nature. I don't know if that still exists or if it's mainly in Alaska now, but it, it really is a, a feeling of not just the frontier, but of those big skies and the wide open spaces and, and maybe being a, a feeling that you're a little bit small. It's hard to get that on the East Coast with the population density. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that's, you know, part of what it is that really draws a lot of people to live in the West is just, you know, uh, that scale and just feeling like you really can get easily get out into a place where you can really truly feel surrounded by the natural world. And, mm. and so that's so, you know, important for like, you know, your psychological health. And I think that that's something that you know, I know I really rely on and that is, you know, when I've traveled, when I've lived other places, you know, moved away to for graduate school and, and travel to Europe and things like that. I always had this longing for places where I could stand on top of a mountain and look out and not see any interstates, mm. not see any, you know, stop lights or or lights at all, really. So that that's kind of a very unique treasure that we have here in the West. And and a lot of people just, you know, live here exclusively for that reason. Yeah. I saw a map the other day where they they put uh, the, a map of Germany and it basically fit inside Washington state. And they said, you know, there really is no reason why Washington state couldn't have the same population density as Germany. And just from a resources perspective, I just thought, just imagine, I mean, I don't know what that is, 80 or 90 million people, I think. And just the way that would transform the West to be, to have that kind of uh, infrastructure and that kind of population density. Yeah, exactly. And so that just goes to show you, it, 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 and it maybe it would have, maybe that's what would have happened in the American West if we hadn't had, you know, these visionaries, including Roosevelt, who had this idea that we can protect this wilderness and that, that there was something that we needed to try and you know, have control over how much, you know, population density there is living in these wild places. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it to imagine that a different sort of direction that history could have gone really puts things in perspective. So your podcast is called The Modern West. What do you mean by the modern West? How does that differ from the West of the past? Yeah. Well, you know, and especially this season that I'm working on right now, which is about ranching and sort of the cowboy mythology, you know, there's this idea of what the West is. And we have these ideas of sort of, you know, like the TV show Yellowstone maybe is is trying to kind of kind of recapture that feeling of that we still have this sort of cowboy lifestyle. And and there's all these Wild West movies, spaghetti westerns and things that really sort of idealize the cowboy and that outlaw version of the cowboy. And I think that the modern West, you know, the reason why we named it that is because there is really a need to start to evolve some of that mythology. And there's a lot of people working to, but there's sort of this clinging to sort of old ideas about the West. And so, you know, what we're interested in as a podcast is kind of like finding people who are pushing back on some of that and, you know, trying to do new things and grow who it is, what our identity as Westerners, what that really means. Mm. So what would be an example of someone who's trying to uh, push back against that idea? You know, I think probably like so many of my characters for this season come to mind, maybe the water attorney that I'm working with, a woman mm. who 
is uh, a rancher, grew up on a ranch here in Wyoming, but there's a, an effort to drill a whole bunch of high-capacity water wells into the Ogallala Aquifer where her family ranches sit, and that would drain potentially the creeks and streams and wells all around her and her neighbors' lands. And so she's really fighting this effort and using, you know, talking a lot about climate change and just a future that's going to involve a lot more drought. And so that's somebody who is saying, okay, you know, Maybe her traditionally she might have stayed on the ranch as a woman and not really necessarily pushed back on some of those kinds of things and just thought, you know, this is a resource that, you know, it's there. And that's kind of like the more traditional approach that if if it's there, let's use it. And so I think that there is people like her who are pushing back and saying it's time to do something to make sure that we preserve our, you know, natural world and these resources like our water that we really need and care about. Mm. So a conservationist approach or a more of a more of an enlightened approach. I'm guessing also the methodology. I'm imagining if there was a movie about this set in the 19th century, we would see a woman with a shotgun going out and <laughs> and protecting the borders or, or something. And and today it's probably a lot of Internet research and maybe uh, emails and calls to Washington or to a state capital or something like that, committee meetings and, you know, presentations. Yes, exactly. That there's, you know, this is somebody who's a warrior, but she's not necessarily going to be fighting it with a gun like they would in the Wild West. She's somebody who's, you know, really becoming articulate in the, you know, courtroom and, and pushing herself out there, even though, you know, it's, I have seen her in the courtroom and it was kind of upsetting to see how uh, she wasn't given as much respect as she should have been. And, but she's doing it. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, I think there's folks like her that are really trying to make sure that, you know, we're evolving the way that we do things out here in the West. Yeah. You know, I'm guessing, too, that a lot of the people that I've talked to, especially the people who have written what I would call a modern Western, you know, they're updating the Western genre or something in some way. A lot of them will go ahead and set things in the past, but they'll use contemporary themes. And and one of the things they'll say is, the mythologized Old West was not as white, for example, as it is as it was portrayed in Hollywood. Or, you know, there were a lot more different kinds of people who were there. There were a lot more different. And then we have examples like Brokeback Mountain. And, you know, the, things were a lot less black and white, so to speak, as uh, than they were often portrayed. And you can explore the past and find much more of a modern resonance even within the historical past. Yeah. Uh, the second episode of this season of the Modern West is about the, you know, history of the cowboy. The cowboy actually descended from not, you know, we have our, it in our minds maybe that the cowboy comes from sort of like a European who came here and wanted to raise cows on the range and, and so then ended up like developing these techniques of doing that. Now, that's not where the cowboy came from. He was, he was actually descended from the Mexican vaquero. And those were, you know, vaqueros were just, you know, the guys who were working for some of these ranchers. And they had, they often had, you know, intermarried with indigenous people, um, but they might have been brought over like horseback riding skills from uh, the Moors and things like that. And so, you know, as they they moved out and were trying to, you know, have cattle on these giant open spaces, that's not where cows had ever been raised before. So they had to totally invent 
our strategies and, and they invented the lasso and they invented, you know, uh, the right cowboy boots to wear and they invented like the roundup and and these long cattle drives and things like that to enable them to be able to raise this, you know, species in a place that had never been raised before. So actually, yeah. And then, and then even once, you know, the cowboy sort of took over, a lot of those cowboys were, you know, African-Americans and indigenous people. There's lots and lots of indigenous cowboys as well, still are to this day. And so, yeah, this concept that it's a very white history is very much inaccurate. Yeah, it's one of those things where we're so used to fiction and Hollywood inventing and imagining and making things uh, more ex- exciting and interesting than real life. And in, in actuality, the actual history is a lot more interesting than what ended up on the screen. <laughs> yeah, that's often the case. And and I think that's just there's a certain kind of whitewashing that that I think happens in a lot of those movies. I was just playing a, I think I might be end up using a little piece of Bonanza, that that old Wild West yeah. era TV show that's about a ranch. And it's just very much, you know, really sticking to kind of like these very traditional ideas about, you know, our ranch as like it's heaven, but we might lose it. And so there's this constant fear that this natural world that we love um, as ranchers, as pioneers, that's going to be stolen away from us, that Native Americans are going to, you know, try and get this land back. Or So there's just a lot of that kind of thinking behind a lot of those old Wild West movies and books that we kind of think of as classics. Mm. Okay. So when did you become a bookstore owner? So um, we've owned um, a bookstore. My, my parents actually started you know, having used books in their stores in Walden way back, like, Mm. I don't even know, gosh, maybe 25 years ago. And they owned like fly fishing stores. And um, they had, um, my dad's a fly fisherman and also builds bamboo fly rods. And so they, they always had kind of, you know, businesses in Walden. And my mom always had an area that was just books. And the whole family would just like, as soon as she would come home with, you know, boxes of books, we would just gather around the whole family and start just like pouring over. We're all very bookish. And so, you know, including my husband, who um, uh, when I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan, he worked for a really great used bookstore out there, the Don Treader. And so when we were planning to move back home, he, he said he wanted to start a business and wanted to start a used bookstore. And so we started just like going to all the garage sales and all the library book sales and just stockpiling all these great books. And we had no place to keep them. We were like stuffing them in our closets. We had friends who were keeping boxes for us under their beds and stuff. And uh, and then when we moved back, we just like got rid of all of our furniture. And basically all we came back with was books. So yeah, so we, you know, decided Laramie, Wyoming was the place we wanted to move to because it's a university town. So we knew that there was going to be lots of readers here. There was already some really great bookstores here anyway. And uh, yeah, and we just moved into this tiny little, like it was the size of a bedroom um, was where we started. And just immediately within six months outgrew that space and then moved into a couple of other spaces before we landed in the space we're in now, which is just such an amazing space. Um, it's a two-story antiquarian bookstore, and we added a coffee shop to it uh, about 10 years ago. And so it's now a used bookstore and coffee shop. And uh, 
it's it's in an old part of Laramie, Wyoming, in the old part of town. Um, it actually used to be a whorehouse is what it used to be, actually. Wow. And we're right next door and our and our landlords are actually a new bookstore. And so we have a door open that goes between. And so if you can't find it at our place, we send you over next door to find it at the new bookstore. Right. How did you come to learn that it was formerly a whorehouse? Well, it's just kind of common knowledge. And, and the, the, um, the, uh, <laughs> you the, have people house. knocking at the door. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, 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 no, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's like the, the local historians know where all of those were. And there, Laramie was, uh, kind of renowned for its um, whorehouses. And the, and second story, the new bookstore right next door to ours is actually um, all the books are in these little tiny rooms off of a large middle room. And those those small rooms all around, that's where the gals, you know, did their business. Mm, right. Okay. Well, I'm wondering if you get the sense as you follow the industry and maybe talk to bookstore owners around the country, if you get a sense of what people who come into your store in Wyoming are looking for that's different from what someone going into a bookstore in Michigan or Boston or New York or something is looking to read? Well, I would say that we, you know, I, we definitely have a lot of folks who are interested in our, you know, in our Western history section. Mm -hmm. So we sell a lot of that, especially in the summertime when there's tourists traveling through. Those are, are a lot of the books that people are looking for. That's a good souvenir, say, from the the Wild West, I guess, on their trip. Or they want to read it while they're on vacation there. Yeah. I often do that where I, you know, you land in a country or a new state or something and, and you feel like, well, since I'm going to be spending an hour or two reading at night before I go to bed, I might as well read about something that's set here or learn more about the place. Totally. I mean, I, I know when I was in Spain, that's where I read all my Hemingway. <laughs> mm, right, so, right. Yeah, you you kind of want to read the thing. And so I think a lot of people, you know, that I, I know that when I lived in Arizona as well, I uh, that's where I read all my Edward Abbey, things like mm. that. So, so you know, it's it's um it's so true. I think people are looking. And so we, you know, we get like people who are interested in reading Annie Prue. Right. Or, you know, The Meadow by James Galvin and some of those kind of local writers that are, are from this area. My friend Flicka was written about a ranch right outside of Laramie. So, you know, we get people coming in looking for that trilogy. And so, yeah, there's a there's a lot of those kind of books that people are definitely looking for. OK, let's take a quick break and then come back with Melody Edwards. And we'll ask if Wallace Stegner is still someone who people are buying. Okay, we're back with Melody Edwards, a bookstore owner and a podcaster. Melody, when did you discover Wallace Stegner? You know, I have been reading Wallace Stegner off and on since my 20s. I, I'm a big fan. I I mean, I just have, I've always loved all of his books beyond the 100th Meridian and a lot of his essays and things like that. They're just, he's a beautiful writer. Crossing to Safety is a, another an amazing mm. novel that I mm -hmm. that I. And I, so, I, yeah, I've been reading Stegner, you know, since I was in my 20s, I would say. Yeah. Were you drawn to him 
as a figure. I mean, he's he's often called the dean of Western writers. He was so famous as a someone connected to Stanford and someone who was connected with the uh, Sierra Club and different movements and the environmentalist movement. Did you kind of know of him as a as a figure or was it just through the books that was uh, appealing to you? I think it was kind of they were it was both. You know, he's very much somebody that when you sit down to read him, uh, you're conscious of the fact that he's he is this figure. He's this um, this person who really was kind of like at the wheel guiding the way we think about the West and about the environment. And so, you know, it, you're you're sort of sitting down to read the book maybe for that reason even. Uh, mm-hmm. to, but then once you sit down and start reading, then you often get engulfed by, you know, just his storytelling and, and his beautiful writing. So if you're in the South, you pick up William Faulkner. Mm-hmm. If you're in Spain, you pick up Ernest Hemingway. If you're somewhere in the West, eventually you gravitate toward Wallace Stegner. For sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And... Angle of Repose, that's the book everybody loves. Have you been able to pinpoint why you think that is? You know, I and I, I think that this novel, it's because it is, it's not political. So, you know, he is a very much a political figure. And um, as you just mentioned, I'm very much this person who we sort of think of as kind of somebody who who wrote a lot about the environment and and some of those things. But this is a very just a domestic story about a couple and their marriage and um, the fact that it's from the point of view, most of it, a lot of it is from the point of view of a woman, which is new for him, like not something that you see him tackle. That definitely was something that I found really fascinating too. So yeah, I think that I think it's a, a novel that I just was like amazed by at a young age because of the risks he was taking. Well, I had other questions, and maybe we'll circle back to those. But since you mentioned that it's in the point of view, uh, from the point of view of a woman, or it takes the, it has a protagonist who's a woman, we should probably talk about the controversy. Yeah. So, what happened there? What do the critics allege? And take us through that that part of the story here. Yeah, I um, you know, when I knew that I was going to be, you know, doing this interview, I started rereading it. I was so excited to reread it, and then just randomly across my desk came um, an essay uh, that somebody had written for a California magazine about, you know, the fact that this novel, and th- and this is something that's been known, that this novel was uh, actually based on the life of Mary. Halleck Foote. And she was somebody who was a writer and an illustrator back in the 1870s. And she and her and her husband, it was very, I mean, the novel really follows very closely their life. He was uh, a mining engineer and they ended up traveling all over, moving all around the West and Mexico following his career. And she was, you know, this sort of genteel woman who had, you know, was kind of a famous, she was kind of famous as an as an illustrator and as a writer ended up writing novels. So that is wonderful and there's nothing wrong with writing about, you know, historical figures, but what this essay alleges is that that he actually used parts of her memoirs that at the time that he was writing had not been published, but they ended up getting published basically simultaneously. But even then it, it's odd that he would choose to use like he's lifting actual whole passages from memoirs and from her books and writing, which is the problem. In fact, even the title, Angle of Repose, is 
plagiarized. So that's the issue that I really was just struck by. And so rereading it, when I sat down to reread it for this interview, I was just looking at it and seeing, knowing that that was the case, that was really hard for me um, to accept that Stegner would make that choice. And and in the essay, she points out that he was kind of defensive about it. And so he, he was communicating with the family, the Foot family, and was in communication with the granddaughter, Janet Michelo, I guess is how you pronounce her last name, um, which he doesn't even mention in the, you know, the foreword of the book. I've got it right here. In the foreword of the book, he doesn't say anything about the fact that this was based on the life of Mary Foote. He just says, my thanks to J.M. and her sister for the loan of your ancestors. Though I have used many details of their lives and characters, I've not hesitated to warp both personalities and events to fictional needs. This is a novel which utilizes selected facts from their real lives. It is in no sense a family history. But the problem is, is that he doesn't veer far enough away from her life and the fact that he uses her exact words is is really problematic for me. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a self-serving disclaimer because it it frames the issue in a way that is sort of flattering to him. It's like saying I know there are real people involved, so you can probably pat me on the back for for me getting all of this right and all the history and everything is going to be accurate because I was following some real people. But, you know, I'm a fiction writer and fiction writers have to make things interesting and turn it into art and so on. But actually, it's very a very different thing to take someone's actual words. Then it becomes, well, it was this could you not have done this yourself? Were you not capable of writing in this from this point of view or getting the language right? Or was this person actually more poetic or more insightful than you yourself could have been? Yeah. And, you know, I, I understand that he, he actually taught her writings. He was a big admirer of her writing. He, you know, and so that, you know, I understand that he might have just thought, wow, she's, she's a beautiful writer, but why not tip his hat to yeah. that? some way, like either by keeping her name, her actual name as the character, you know, so, you know, there's other novels that have done that, like Lust for Life, which is about Van Gogh, and it's a novelization of his life, which is fine, but kept his name so that we know that that's what's going on. And if he was such an admirer of her writing, then why not give her some credit? Um, so it just, it it's a little too much like what we see, you know, you hear about F. Scott Fitzgerald the writing of Zelda, Fitzgerald, things like that, where we just see throughout history, unfortunately, where there's male writers who kind of just take the writings of women and use them for their own devices. Um, and unfortunately, it feels like that's kind of what ended up happening here. And it's a little uncomfortable to see that that, that he did that. And in especially in his day, it could be a male writer. In Fitzgerald's day, it could be a male writer. Today, it might be any writer who has more power, more fame, that they're they're taking a, a lesser writer and using their words. And what I would really want is a writer who would be brave enough to say in their disclaimer, I came across the diaries or I came across the writings of so-and-so. I didn't believe I could improve upon it. There are many passages in here that I have repeated verbatim. You know, like short of that, it just feels like cheating. It does. 
that's the problem is that it it feels like that he was you know especially cuz the the novel actually is this whole you know he uses this strategy wh- where the grandson is kind of telling the story and and kind of um what's the word for it i i don't know it, the the grandson is basically telling this story about his grandmother and quoting from her journals and so uh, apparently a lot of those you know, passages, these journal entries are just lifted straight from Mary Foote's, you know, journals. So that's just really problematic in terms of, you know, in some way he could have had a disclaimer, like you say, where he just acknowledged, I loved her writing and I couldn't have improved upon it. And so, yes, some of these writings are not my own. I would have been okay with that if he had at least acknowledged that. And then I would have maybe back in my 20s gone and sought out the original and found out, oh, this is an amazing writer in her own right. And I would have read her. Instead, when I went to try and find a copy of her reminiscences, they're not in print anymore. It would cost me two, three hundred dollars to get a copy. So that's that's a problem. She should be in print. We should be reading her. She's a beautiful writer. Now, as a book, uh, it's probably fair to say that the reason why this book was so popular was not because people thought, oh, my goodness, look at this amazing feat by this amazing writer. He's been able to channel somebody from the past and somebody from a completely different background. I think people would be okay with the book on its own if they knew the truth about it. In other words, I I think if you framed it correctly today, if you had an introduction or something where someone laid it out, I think the book would still be as good as it would be if you thought that it was the work of one man's mind and creativity, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is still, I mean, in that, in the structure, um, the device that he's using with this grandfather kind of reflecting and, and doing research on his own grandmother, looking back, that's such a, a fascinating setup. Um, and he's doing it, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. And so there's, there's also that history that we're looking at where there's like this, you know, he hires a young woman to come and help him who's a total hippie. And there's this, these, all these sort of generational clashings um, that are just fascinating to see. And and it's so American and it's so, it's so such an interesting structure. I mean, that's the problem. I can still sit down and read this novel and love it. It is still gorgeous. You know, I'm just the whole time kind of conscious now of the fact that some of the writing is unfortunately not his own. And I just, I wish he would have in some way been able to acknowledge that so that I could relax and enjoy it. Yeah. Even though he is long gone and you don't need to worry about, well, am I putting money in his pocket unfairly? But even so, you just feel like you're kind of giving him credit by spending the time with him reading the book. It's it's kind of a shame in a way, but I'm guessing people are still coming into your bookstore and looking for Angle of Repose. Oh, absolutely. We can't keep it on the shelf for sure. It's still definitely all of Stigner. All of his books all just continue to sell very, very well, especially in Laramie, Wyoming. Yeah. Okay. So we do know at a minimum, one good thing, I guess, is that this wasn't his only success. So we know that he was capable of writing amazing books, even outside of whatever he did with Angle of Repose. But how would you say, I mean, we call him the Dean of Western Writers, but that was you know, we're now about 50 years away from when he came out with Angle of Repose. Would you say he fits into the modern West? 
Yeah, I do. In fact, when I first started developing the Modern West podcast, I used Wallace Stegner quotes in a lot of my promotional materials and things like that. He very much stands up, especially in terms of the way he thinks about and thought about our natural world and why it is that it needs to be defended and how he puts in perspective the history that that brought us to a place where we are now facing climate change and drought in the American West and wildfires. And, you know, I actually, <laughs> I just was writing yesterday an episode of this season about ranching and used a quote, tracked down an interview with Wallace Stegner, where he talks about, you know, the history of just our thinking about how nothing should be wasted. We have this idea that, you know, we shouldn't waste anything. We shouldn't waste grass. We shouldn't waste water. It needs to be used and that it's put here for human use. And he said, it's, you know, that that's how we won the West. And he also talks about how, you know, this natural world where we are letting a lot of cattle graze across our public lands without really a lot of sort of management tactics uh, to kind of make sure that that impact isn't hurting the land. You know, he talks about how this is a landscape that's very arid, it's very fragile, and it doesn't heal. And those are kinds of ideas that we really need to make sure that we keep from Wallace Stegner. He's, he was very much somebody who was able to take history and see into the future and recognize that we need to make sure that we are protecting this amazing gift that we gave ourselves, which is our public lands. And so, yeah, it's a... Uh, I am very much of the mind where I can see that he was a flawed person and I'm I'm sad that he made that choice about this one novel, but I still am just very much a huge Wallace Stegner fan. He's kind of a, a prophet of the modern West. Oh, totally. I feel like that would be the case. Yeah, that he's somebody who was able to really, you know, see where it was that we were headed a long time before a lot of people in the West saw that direction they were going. Right. Well, and some people, I don't, <laughs> I hope I'm not going to offend you with this, but some people might say, well, as the embodiment of the modern West, you could say that there's a little bit of theft in the past of the West as well. Maybe makes him all the more representative of the modern West. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't want to end things there. So, why, yeah. So, why don't we? <laughs> why, <laughs> my apologies. Why don't we go back? Uh, let me ask you something else, which is, I've always wondered about this. When I first went to California, I landed and suddenly I felt like I was across the mountains and I was looking at the Pacific Ocean and everything I was looking at was different. I was oriented differently. I was looking at the sunset instead of the sunrise. And I just felt like I had never really had that experience before of viewing the difference, being still within America, but feeling like I was pointed in a different direction, that it was, I just was in a different place. And I talked to a friend of mine who was from California and I told him about this and he said, well, you know, you are. That is what it is. You are like the mountains are at your back. You're not looking at Europe. You're looking at Asia, if anywhere, or you're, you know, you are where you are. And the West is just different from the East. Is that something you feel as well? Or do you feel like there's a closer tie between East and West, the Eastern part of the United States and the Western part of the United States? Mm, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that there's you know, that it does sometimes feel like that we are in a almost a different country out here in the West. The way that we interact with the natural world is very different than you do out East. And, and that there's, 
a lot of cultural things around that. But I, I do think that it's important to remember that history, that as people were arriving on the East Coast, they didn't have a sense of what was out here in the West and that this was, we actually ended up pioneering or settling, um, if you want to use those words, even though there was lots of people in these places, we ended up moving into the east side of this country. So we settled the east and then we kind of settled the west and then we moved inward. And so this is kind of out here in the Rocky Mountain region is sort of the last place that was sort of taken over. And and so those that history is very close by to us out here. We feel the sense that these mountains they were not that long ago that Native Americans were hunting here and that this land was being kind of managed by those tribes that were living in this land and that there was just a lot more of a wildlife and, and all of that is feels fresher. But it belongs to us all. And I feel like that history mm-hmm. is something that I hope that Easterners don't feel like I'm not welcome here or this doesn't belong to me. It's public lands that belong to all of us. And, you know, federal lands are, gosh, they're, I think they're like 70% of the state of Wyoming belongs to the federal government. And that means it belongs to everybody in our country. And so I hope there's a sense of ownership and pride and a, a feeling of responsibility for for the American West and that, that it's something that we all need to take care of. And I think Wallace Degner would absolutely advocate for that. Mm. Indeed. I used to have a lot of friends when I was in Italy and they would say, you know, they would all go to America and they would all say, well, we're going to go to New York City and we're going to go to Los Angeles. And, you know, then we will have seen America. And I used to think, oh, and you're not you're not seeing New Orleans and you're not seeing Chicago. You're not seeing Florida. And, you know, there's so much else. I would add to that list uh, a drive across uh, the United States from you know, through Minnesota and the the Dakotas and the Badlands and into Wyoming and to Washington that way and a, a drive to the Grand Canyon and a drive like there's just it's so much a part. I mean, you you certainly don't have to do that, but I don't think you can say you've seen America unless you've done it because it is so important to our cultural imagination of who we are and how important the entire continent is to the nation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we I know that Yellowstone is kind of one of those, you know, bucket lists that we make it onto. But, you know, there's places, one of our episodes of this next season is about the Red Desert, which is just, you know, when you're driving on the interstate across Wyoming, most people are like, oh my gosh, you know, there's nothing here. And they look out and they just see maybe some oil rigs and, uh, you know, and some like leftover trailers that are just sitting out there, nobody living in them. And it feels like it's nowhere. Um, and it feels like it's not valuable. But actually, if you get off the interstate and drive into the Red Desert, it's gorgeous. Like just these amazing rock formations. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of like wildlife that lives there. And it's it's the destination for the longest mule deer migration in the world. Um, And so, you know, it's just a, uh, it's a really fascinating place that we just don't really necessarily recognize and that we don't know that we need to value. And so there's, you know, things like that, that where, you know, I think that uh, we, as we sort of think about our country um, as Americans, that we want to make sure that we are also looking at some of those hidden gems, those places that kind of are off our radar and make sure that we take good care of those. Mm. 
And for those of us who can't travel everywhere all at once, we can read books by people like Wallace Stegner, and we can listen to podcasts like The Modern West with Melody Edwards. Absolutely. I hope that people will feel that way about the podcast, that, that it's a uh, an opportunity to, you know, and, and then I, t- and I take that very seriously, is that that audio experience of taking people into really amazing places and having amazing experiences. We, uh, um, in this season, we're going to, you know, actually take people out to experience this, uh, you know, historic sheep drive that's coming down from the mountains in southern Colorado. And I take people, you know, out onto a ranch where people are, trying some new methods of raising their cows in different ways, really bringing to life all sorts of places that maybe you wouldn't go and you get to actually experience that, what that sounds like and hear those voices and get to know these people that maybe you would never stop and talk to or or even encounter in your life. But I want to make sure that people get to know some of those places and people. Mm. The podcast is called The Modern West. Melody Edwards, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, such a pleasure to do so. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Melody Edwards for joining me. Do check out The Modern West when you get the chance and maybe revisit another friend of the show who wrote a modern western for her award-winning novel. Anna North is her name, and her novel is called Outlawed, and she loves Crazy Cat Comics. You can hear all about it in episode 308, New Westerns. I'm Jack Wilson. Very glad you chose to spend some time with us today. We have some Dr. Seuss on the horizon and some Adam Smith and some Tom Stoppard. So please do subscribe and follow so you don't feel left out. Just imagine how bad I would feel if you missed those shows and I had to have to live with the pain of knowing that I caused you such extreme regret. Don't do that to old Jack with an E. Some words are out there hogging E's. E's they don't even need, like geese and peewee. Who needs that word peewee? All those wasted E's. Or eek. What about that? Two E's is sufficient. And sometimes they just add extra E's for the hell of it. And here's me with my one little E tacked onto my name. Riding along without bothering anybody, although once in a while people do call me Jackie. Including guests have done that, which makes me wonder if they've ever listened to the show. Ah, who are we kidding? It's not really a mystery at that point, is it? Wonder no more. Jack Wilson, you're as invisible to them as a shadow at midnight or an angel hopping from one foot to the other on the head of a pin, as angels tend to do. Invisible to the naked eye and the clothed eyes as well. Their feet tiny, very tiny, but not quite tiny enough to fit on that head of a pin, leading to all that hopping. You'd think their wings would help out a bit. But that's where you'd be wrong. And St. Thomas Aquinas, ask him if you don't believe me. He was the expert at angels on pins until he did all that backtracking on his deathbed. Speaking of which, I don't want to have to backtrack anymore, so let's wrap things up. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.